How many of you have, in the course of your life, made some mistakes that you really regretted? It's good. So I make sure, you know, it wasn't a perfect church. How many of you have made some mistakes this week that you kind of wish, gosh, I wish I wouldn't have done that, said that? Yeah, that's good. You know, sometimes, though, mistakes that we make can be honest mistakes. Like, consider this. Consider this, this word. I'm going to ask my buddy Kevin down here. Kevin, what does that word say? <laughs> Come on. I mean, you just retired from the military. I, I you know, minute, not my nut. <laughs> but, you know... It also is, it's minute. And he really wouldn't know which it is because he doesn't know how it's being used in the sentence. So that, that would be an honest mistake on our brother Kevin's part. Also, my wife, she can say to me, she can say, when you go to the store, get some cookie dough ice cream. Now I go to the store and I come back with cookies and cream. Now, the reason is because I thought that's what she said. I, you know, cookie dough, cookies and cream, you know, that's, that's an easy one to, to mix up. And most of the time, actually, she did say cookies and cream. She just meant cookie dough, you know, and I come back and it's like, you know, why didn't you get the cookie dough? Well, you said cookies and cream. No, I didn't, you know, but that's a, that's an honest mistake, you know. Now, Billy Bob, this young guy living down in Louisiana, was walking down by the bayou one day on his way to school. And as he's walking there along the bayou, he, he sees the outhouse sitting there on the side of the bayou and he just gets that mischievous little thing in him, you know, that young kids can get. And, and, and he just decides, man, you know, I can't pass this up and just gets all of his strength and energy. And he runs at that outhouse like a linebacker heading for a running back and he hits it, knocking it over into the bayou. Goes on his way to school. Here's his lesson that day at school and comes home and his dad's waiting for him. Billy Bob, did you knock the outhouse into the bayou on your way to school today? And he says, Dad, I learned today about George Washington and how he cut down the cherry tree. And his dad said to him, George, did you cut down that cherry tree? And he said, yes. And, you know, I can't tell a lie. Yes, Dad, I cut down the cherry tree. And so, so he says, Dad... Yes, I can't tell a lie. I knocked the outhouse into the bayou and his dad said, get over here, son. I'm going to give you a whooping. And Billy Bob says, but dad, George Washington's dad did give him a, a whooping when he admitted to cutting down the cherry tree. And Billy Bob's dad said, yeah, but George Washington's dad wasn't in that cherry tree. <laughs> now, that mistake of Billy Bob's was not really an honest mistake. He was actually doing something that he shouldn't have been doing. Something that was a bit rebellious. Well, in our study tonight, we are going to see once again in King Saul's life, him making some mistakes that really could have been avoided. Billy Bob's mistake, it could have been avoided if he wouldn't have just gave in to that temptation. Well, Tonight we're going to see in King Saul's life some things that he does that really could have been avoided if he would have just followed the Lord. 
We saw in the first part of our study last time in chapter 14 how Jonathan and his armor bearer, the children of Israel, are in this place where the Philistines have come up against them, and it's kind of at a stalemate. There's nothing happening. The, the armies of the Philistines have grown large, and they've come against the people of Israel. The army of Israel had shrunk down from 3,000 to 600. But Jonathan comes to this place, and we looked at it in our study a few weeks ago, where he gets this idea to just have this venture of faith, to just step out. And you remember he says to his armor bearer, God doesn't need a whole army. He can save with two. Let's just go see what the Lord might want to do. And they go over and they give this little test and the, the Lord ends, ends up revealing to them, yes, I'm in this. They attack the Philistines and God begins to just bless and God begins to work and God begins to just, you know, cause this commotion. And there's a garrison of the, the Philistines that are defeated. Well, all the whole time, When Jonathan is seeking for what the Lord might want to do, his father, the king, is sitting. He's sitting, not knowing what to do. But all of a sudden, someone comes with this report and says, hey, there's something going on over there amongst the Philistines. There's an uproar happening. And that's where we pick it up in verse 16 of chapter 14. Now, the watchman of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked... And there was the multitude melting away. And they went here and there. And then Saul said to the people who were with him, Now call the roll and see who has gone from us. And when they had called the roll, surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And Saul said to Ahijah, that's the priest, Bring the ark of God here. For at that time, the ark of God was with the children of Israel. So Saul starts to see this stirring taking place. There's something happening. And right away, he calls for the ark. Now, remember the last time the children of Israel did this? Remember what a disaster it was when they were going into battle and somebody had this great idea, bring the ark and we'll bring that out and we'll bring it into battle. And what happened? They were soundly defeated and and the ark of God was captured. Saul is doing the same thing here. He calls for the ark. He calls for the priest. He says, let's see if we can find out what's going on. And what Saul is doing here is he's seeking spiritual things as a token for fortune. He's speaking spirit. He's seeking spiritual things as a a blessing for a blessing. And the mistake number one that we see that Saul is making here is he's going to be putting his confidence in the wrong thing. Now, Whenever we do that, we're in trouble. You know, sometimes churches, they'll see what God is doing in a Calvary chapel. They'll see how he's blessing. And they'll come and they'll kind of check it out and they'll think, you know what? I know what it is. I know what we need. We need a dove, you know. We need a dove. Let's go get a dove, you know, and they find the guy that makes the doves and they, they, they get a dove. Sometimes even people think, you know, it's, it's the name, Calvary Chapel. That's what we need to do. We'll just, you know, become a Calvary Chapel and that, that's going to be the ticket. Putting the, their, their confidence, their faith in the wrong thing. Now, some of you remember back when we moved as a church from the little building over there off of Hacienda to this building. How many of you were around back then when 
We did that. Yeah, some of you. And when we moved over here, there were some things that as we were moving into this building that were given to us. They were given to us by Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. They were given to us by, by, by the mother church. Those things were the pews that you're sitting in. And the, the first pulpit that was here on the stage, some of you might remember it. It was this great, big, huge thing. And it, I mean, it was wide. I mean, it was about this wide. It belonged to Pastor Chuck. And it was, you know, it was like riding a semi truck. You know, I mean, it was just, it was huge. You know, it was this great, big pulpit. Brian ended up going to a, a real small one, even smaller than the, this one that I like to use. But, but at first it was this great big pulpit. Now, and please understand, listen closely here. I don't want anybody emailing Brian, you know, but let's say they didn't do this, but let's say if Brian and Gaylord said as they were moving over here, you know what? We'll get Costa Mesa's pews. We'll get Pastor Chuck's pulpit. And we'll be, we'll have an anointing here, you know. That would be putting their confidence in the wrong thing. It's not the pulpit. It was funny when Brian decided to get rid of that pulpit, one of the guys that we sent out, he was like, man, I want that pulpit. There's an anointing in it, you know. It belonged to Pastor Chuck. And, and, uh, I don't remember where they shipped it to, but they, they, they gave it to him. But it's not the pulpit. It's not the pulpit. But sometimes we can do that. We can put our confidence in the, the, the wrong thing. Now, some of you might remember also when we moved over here way back when we also, we had the pews from Costa Mesa, the pulpit of Pastor Chuck, and the speakers of ACDC. They came right off the ACDC tour, you know. And, uh, our old sound man, Chip, got them at a, at a real discount. And, and, uh, so, you know, we had to cast demons out of them before we started church, but. <laughs> Talk about a mixed multitude, but, um, you know, but we can do that. Another way that we can do that is by putting our confidence in people. I've made this mistake before when we were in Oregon and we were doing our church there and the church was going along well and, and, and all, but, but, uh, you know, we kind of had hit a, a place where we kind of leveled out and we, you know, weren't experiencing uh, very much growth. And, and there was this friend of mine who was in the area and uh, he was a phenomenal worship leader, just a great worship leader. And he was involved in one church and was leaving there. And I just felt like, you know what, man, we need this guy. We need this guy and he needs to come be our worship leader. And, you know, we finagled some things around to bring him on staff to be our worship leader. And I was thinking, man, this is going to just, you know, this is going to do it. The church is just going to explode because this guy is just a phenomenal worship leader. And you know what? Church didn't explode. We grew, but you know where we grew the most? We didn't really grow a ton in numbers. There was growth. The Lord added to the church. But you know where we grew? We grew in worship. We became much better and, and much uh, more of a congregation of worshipers because of his gift. But I made the mistake of thinking, you know, this is it, putting my confidence in man. And we can do that. We can do that. Listen to what Jeremiah said about that, though. In Jeremiah 17, verse 5, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert, 
and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness. That's what happens to the person who puts his confidence in man. So mistake number one is Saul is seeking to put his confidence in the wrong place. He's putting it in the ark and he's so out of touch that he's trying to surround himself with spiritual things. Now, what happens next would be comical if it wasn't so sad. Look at verse 19. Now, it happened while Saul talked to the priest that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Now, here, Saul is trying to have this spiritual moment. He's trying to seek from direction. Bring the ark here. Let's pray. Let's seek the Lord. Let's see what he wants us to do. But then when he hears this noise over there in the camp of the Philistines is starting to grow it's like he goes withdraw your hand we don't have time for this let's go fight now before we condemn Saul though how many of us how many of us have done the same thing we're seeking the Lord we pray maybe for an hour maybe for a couple of days and then we say to ourselves I I can't wait anymore you know I have to do something and then off we go and we do the same thing The same thing that we see Saul doing here. It's a danger. We pick it up in verse 20. Then Saul and all the people who were with him assembled and they went to the battle. And indeed, every man's sword was against his neighbor. And there was very great confusion. And moreover, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines before that time, who went up with them into the camp from the surrounding country, they also joined the Israelites. So now there's a little insurrection happening here who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim, when they had heard that the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after them in battle. And so the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle shifted to Beth Haven. Now, here we see a little side mark of, of Jonathan's faith. And we talked about this in our study last time that, that faith is contagious. And Jonathan steps out in faith with his armor bearer. And what's happening here? All the Israelites who have gone over and kind of joined and they're living amongst the Philistines, kind of living there in fear. Suddenly they rise up. There's an insurrection and they turn on the Philistines. And all the Israelites were, that were hiding out in the mountains and they were kind of, you know, just hiding out and, 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 and hiding there. They see this going on and Jonathan's faith spurns them and, and they go out and they're seeking after to, to do battle. And suddenly the army of Israel is growing incredibly. And so the Lord gave to Israel a great victory that day. Now, we've already noted in our earlier study that one of Saul's major problems was his pride. And what we're going to see here is that Jonathan has a tremendous victory, but it's Saul who blows the trumpet. Notice verse 24. And the men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul placed the people under an oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening, before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. And so none of the people tasted food. Saul in his pride here, notice the I. Notice how he mentions here, he lays out this heavy trip before I have taken vengeance 
on my enemies. And this was one of the things that Saul did was he, he always wanted to be the center of attention. And this is mistake number two. And pride, it's pride. And pride can get us into a lot of trouble. Webster's Dictionary defines pride as an inornate self-esteem, an unreasonable conceit of one's own superiority in talents, beauty, wealth, accomplishments, rank, or office. That's Webster's Dictionary definition of pride from 1869, the 1869 edition of Webster's Dictionary. Now, some might say, wait a second, isn't there a, a proper pride? I mean, is pride all bad? Pride is so subtle that it changes. Today's Webster's Dictionary definition of pride says this, a sense of one's own proper dignity, value, and self-respect. Wow. In a little over a hundred years, pride has gone through this major transformation from an unreasonable conceit to a proper sense of one's own dignity and self-worth, which is right. Well, what does the Bible say? In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, it says, These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. And the first one on the list, number one, is a proud look. It's pride. A proud look. In Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10, it says, By pride comes nothing but strife. And in Proverbs 28, verse 25, it says, He who is of a proud heart stirs up strife. Pride. A proud look. That was Saul's problem. He wanted to be the center of attention. And according to Solomon, pride is one of those things that can stir up. It brings nothing but strife. And those two verses, those last two verses are interesting to me because one of the marks of pride is really a critical spirit. It's an attitude that always looks at things from the negative. It's that attitude that comes into a business or comes into a, a company or comes into the place that you work or comes into a ministry and says, if I were in charge... I would do it this way. If they really knew what they were doing, they wouldn't do it this way. That critical spirit. All that is is pride. Pride in the heart that wants to look critically on everyone and everything. And the result of that kind of attitude, it's strife and it's ugly. And that leads to Saul's mistake number three is that he's laying an unnecessary burden on the people because he's striving in pride. Again, we pick it up in verse 24. And the men of Israel were distressed that day for Saul had placed the people under an oath saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. And so none of the people tasted food. Now all the people of the land came to the forest and there was honey on the ground. And when the people had come into the woods, there was honey dripping, but no one put his hand to his mouth for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father's charge. And the people charged the people with the oath. And therefore, he stretched out the end of his rod that was in his hand and he dipped it in the honeycomb and he put his hand to his mouth and his countenance brightened. That means he was strengthened. And then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, cursed is the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. But Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. 
Look now how my countenance has brightened or strengthened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found for now. Would there not have been a much greater slaughter among the Philistines? I I really feel sorry for Jonathan. As we go through the story, we're going to see that he he spends his whole life struggling with his dad. Struggling with his dad's stupidity, struggling with his dad's bitterness, struggling with his dad's hatred. And he's he's thrown in this very difficult place where he's put in the middle. He's put in the sense of of wanting to be loyal to his father and to to honor his father. But at the same time, to, to, to really do what God would have him to do. And Jonathan, will, as we will see, he he sees the anointing on David. He knows that David is is God's man. Jonathan says here, concerning his dad's stupidity, my father has troubled the land. Oh, I pray that none of our children would have to say that concerning us. Oh, my father, my mother, they've they've troubled the land. They've troubled the house. They've troubled the family. I wonder if Chelsea felt that way after President Clinton's whole fiasco with Monica. I wonder if she felt, oh, my my father, he's troubled the land. He's troubled our family. Saul's pride causes him to put this unnecessary burden on the people of God. And that's what pride does. It causes us to lay trips on others. And in pride, we place our convictions on others. And, and, and we have that thinking in, in pride that, hey, what's wrong for me also needs to be wrong for you. Watch that. Listen, in every ministry, in every company, in any type of ministry situation, there, there always are going to be standards that are going to be set. And the question really that needs to be answered is, what is the purpose of that standard? What is the purpose? Why is that standard that way? What is the purpose of it? What is the benefit of it? Is it just there because, well, that's the way that we've always done it. That's what we've always done. Or, or has someone... Or because someone thought it was a good idea, well, that's why we do that thing. What's the purpose? What purpose does it serve? It's important. Those of you who are leaders in ministry, those of you who are are leaders in, in, in companies or in places where you work, it's important to establish the reason for those standards. And we have to be careful, especially for those of you who are in ministry, that we don't place unnecessary burdens upon those who minister with us. People need to know why this standard exists. That's why in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 2, love this verse, the Lord declares to Habakkuk, write the vision and make it plain so that those who read it may run with it. Make it plain, write it down, spell it out. Make it understandable. Because if they don't get it, they will invariably question it. They'll invariably struggle with it. And there will be those who will be like, you know, they're going to follow just because they're, they're a team player. And sometimes they find out eventually, oh, now I get it. Like when I was in high school, I played on our high school basketball team and our coach, he ran us to death. 
We did these running drills, they're called lines, and we did them all day long, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And sometimes at the end of the day, when I'd be home at night and I'd be studying, I'd feel like my hamstring you know, muscles were just about ready to pop out of my legs. I mean, they, they just cramped and just, oh, it, it was excruciating. And I remember times thinking, you know, this guy's insane. You know, he's, he's crazy. He's, he's, he's just masochistic. You know, what's wrong with this coach making us run like this all day long? But you know, as the season got started, I understood. I understood. You see, we were in the best shape of our lives and we never ever got outplayed in the fourth quarter. Because we were in such good shape. There was a purpose to all that running. And sometimes, you know, people don't understand until later on in the process, but it's good as a leader to lay things out, write the vision, make it plain. But Saul's oath became a burden for the people because there was no purpose to it. There was no purpose to it whatsoever. It was just all filled with his pride. Hey, no one should eat until we've avenged my enemies. We pick it up in verse 31. Now they had driven back the Philistines that day from Michmash to Agilon. And so the people were very faint. And so, or and the people rushed on the spoil and they took the sheep and the oxen and the calves and the, the slaughtered them on the ground and the people ate them with the blood. And then they and then they told Saul, saying, look, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And so he said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a large stone to me this day. And then Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, bring me here every man's ox and every man's sheep and slaughter them here and eat them and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. And so every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and slaughtered it there. Saul's oath became a burden. You see, that caused the people to sin. God had specifically commanded Israel that they should always properly drain the blood from an animal before they butchered it. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 23, it says, Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life, and you may not eat the life with the meat, and you shall not eat it, and you shall pour it on the the earth like water, and you shall not eat it, that it may go well with you and your children after you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. Since blood was the picture of life in any animal or any man, God declared therefore, the blood is the life. And for that reason, God would not allow Israel to eat meat that had not been properly bled. Instead, it was to be given to God by pouring it out on the earth. Life belongs to God, not to man. And so this was a a way to declare that, that God had instituted. But on this day of battle, because of Saul's foolish command, the people were so hungry that once they defeated the Philistines and the animals were there, they just went nuts. They just went crazy. And they, they went and they started to, to slaughter these animals and just eat the meat with the blood. And their, their obedience to Saul's foolish command led them to disobey God's clearly declared command. And listen, this is always the case with legalism. 
Jesus said it plainly to the legalist of his day in Mark chapter 7, verse 8. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. And all too well, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. And we often think that legalistic rules will keep people from sin, but in actuality, the opposite is true. Legalistic rules lead us into sin because they either provoke rebellion or they lead us into legalistic pride when we're carrying out those things. Paul said it very powerfully. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 23, he said, These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Now, what Saul also does here is he's blaming the people for what was really his own fault. He should have never made such a foolish oath. Such a foolish commandment and his commandment provoked the people to sin. But in his pride and in his insecurity and in his foolishness, Saul set the people up to sin. Now, of course, this doesn't excuse the people. They blew it and they are accountable for their sin. They're accountable for what they did. Yet Saul is also accountable. Jesus referred to this principle when he said in Matthew chapter 18, verse 7, For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Woe to that man. So after the people sin in this way, Saul then says, roll a stone over here. Come on, let's let's do this right. And so it says, "Then, then Saul built an altar, verse 35, to the Lord. And this was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Note that. Underline that. Saul was not an altar builder. He was well into his 40s by now as a man, and and this was his first altar. He'd been king for three years now, and he still had not built an altar to the Lord. Three years, and, and he hasn't invested in worship. It's a sad thing. You know, if you study the book of Genesis, one of the things that you'll find about Abraham Abraham, who was called the friend of God. Abraham was a man whose life was really marked by these two things. Abraham built altars and he dug wells. He built altars to worship God and he dug wells so that his sheep could be watered and his sheep could be fed. He built altars. That was first and foremost in his life. That was his first priority of those two big priorities in his life. Abraham was an altar builder. His life was marked by a worship and an intimacy with God. And his second priority is he took care of the sheep. He gave them something to eat and something to drink. He was an altar builder. Now, what's interesting is you read through the the book of Genesis and you come to Isaac, Abraham's son. You read of Isaac and you know what? It never mentions at all that Isaac built any altars. It does mention, though, that he dug wells. He dug wells. So Isaac is taking care of the sheep, but he's missing out on what should be that first priority in his life, that relationship that he has with God. Building altars, worship. Seeking the Lord in that way. Now, what's interesting is after Isaac, his son Jacob comes along. Jacob doesn't do either. Jacob doesn't build altars and Jacob doesn't doesn't dig wells. Jacob's whole thing concerning taking care of the sheep is he's going to find a scheme. 
He's going to find a gimmick. He's going to find some, you know, technique. He's going to stripe the stakes and, 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 and that's going to, you know, cause the, the, the sheep to grow, cause the flock to, to multiply. He was into gimmicks. Didn't build altars, didn't dig wells. Can I encourage you who are ministry minded? Be altar builders. First and foremost, be those who are going to build altars. Be those who are going to make it your first priority to be a man, to be a woman who worships God. Before you seek to take care of the sheep, before you seek to 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 take care of those that you're ministering to first, take care of your own relationship with God. You know, I look at my life in this way. First of all, I am a person. I'm a person who has a walk with God, a walk with Jesus Christ. I'm a person. I have a relationship with the Lord. Secondly, I'm a partner. I'm a partner in this thing called marriage with my wife, Denise. And we've made a covenant together before the Lord concerning our our relationship with each other and our relationship to the Lord. Thirdly, I'm a parent. And I'm a partner in that sense, too, with my wife, Denise, in the parenting of our children. And then fourth and finally, I'm a pastor. And that's my calling. And that's but that's the the fourth thing there on the totem pole. And what's really interesting, though, my success in those three things that of being a partner in marriage and a parent to my children and a pastor to the church all stems from the very first thing that I'm a person who needs to be in that place where I'm communing and entering into an intimate type of relationship with God and receiving everything that I can from him. It's interesting, in Acts chapter 13, we read there of the church in Antioch, and it says there concerning them that as they ministered to the Lord, not for the Lord, but as they ministered to the Lord in fasting, in prayers, in worship, they're ministering to the Lord, the elders there in the church that then the Spirit spoke and said, separate unto me Paul and Barnabas for the work that I've called them to. And it was the first missionary venture of the early church, sending out of Paul and Barnabas. But notice that it didn't come about because the guys were getting together and strategizing. Where should we plant some churches? Come on, you know, let's look at a map. They weren't doing that. They weren't trying to figure out the the, the next gimmick or marketing technique. No, these guys were ministering to the Lord. And as they were, as they were building an altar there in worship, just ministering to the Lord in that place, then God met them there. And this is a major problem in Saul's life. This is mistake number four, is that he had no intimacy with God. He wasn't a man after God's own heart. Let's see how this story finishes. We pick it up in verse 36. Now Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. And then the priest said, let us draw near to God here. And so Saul asked counsel of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. God hasn't been answering Saul for several chapters now. Because of his disobedience, because of his pride, because of him being lifted up, God has been silent in Saul's life. And Saul said, come over here, all you chiefs of the people, and know and see what sin 
what this sin was today. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. But not a man among them of all the people answered him. And then he said to all of Israel, you be on one side and my son Jonathan and I will be on the other. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. It's like, man, you don't know what you're saying, but, you know, go ahead. Therefore, Saul said to the Lord God of Israel, give a perfect lot. And so Saul and Jonathan were taken. They cast lot, all the people, all the tribes. Saul and Jonathan were singled out. But the people escaped. And Saul said, cast lots between my son Jonathan and me. And so Jonathan was taken. And then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what what you have done. And Jonathan told him and said, I only tasted a little little honey with the end of my rod that was in my hand. And so now I must die. Is that what it is, dad? And Saul answered and said, God do so and more also. For you shall surely die, Jonathan. Notice this. Saul is willing to kill his own son rather than admit his own stupidity. And this is mistake number five. Because of Saul's pride, he's not willing to admit that he was wrong. Remember Happy Days? Fonzie? Remember him trying to say, you know, I was, you know, just couldn't say it. I was, That's Saul. He's going to let his own son be killed rather than say, you know what? Hey, I was wrong. That was stupid. If you want to be a good leader in ministry, in your company, in any place of authority where God has placed you, two phrases are very good phrases that you definitely need to have in your vocabulary. The first is, I was wrong. And the second is, I'm sorry. I was wrong, and I'm sorry. Husbands, you want to be a good leader in your marriage? Hey, add these two phrases to your vocabulary. I was wrong, and I'm sorry, and mean it. Swallow your pride and admit, I was wrong. People admire a leader like that. Saul was just the opposite, but the people had more sense than him. Notice verse 45. But the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. And as the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground for he has worked with God this day. The people understood. This was a God thing, Saul. We're not going to let you touch your son. And so the people rescued Jonathan and he did not die. And then Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines and the Philistines went to their own place. So Saul established, note this, his sovereignty over Israel. Now, this isn't what Israel needed. They didn't need the sovereignty of Saul to be reigning over them. They needed the sovereignty of God. Saul needed to be a man who was being led by God. That was the only way that Israel was going to succeed as far as in in having a king. But Saul, that's not where he's at. And he fought against all of his enemies on every side, against Moab and against the people of Ammon and against Edom and against the kings of Zobah and against the Philistines. And wherever he turned, he harassed them. And he gathered an army and attacked the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. And then in verses 49 and 50 and 51, it talks about Saul's family, his kids, his wife, and how Abner was 
his general and some of these names I can't pronounce. So we'll skip to verse 52. Now there was a fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or valiant man, he took him for himself. Saul is in this place where he's making these mistakes. He's blowing it. As we move into chapter 15, we see mistake number six was his incomplete obedience. Verse one, Samuel also said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people and over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel and how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Amalek, the Amalekites were a brutal people as far as in the way that they did battle. They're just like in, you know, military today and in military during the, the time of the Civil War and really throughout history, there's always have been a certain, you know, protocol as it went to, uh, military battles. And they had that same type of protocol in this day, but the Amalekites, they, they ignored that protocol. And what they would do is that most of the time when people like the children of Israel were a traveling people, they would send the army out in front and they'd have the, the, the older uh, men and the women and children in the back. And what the Amalekites would do is they would send a, a troop of soldiers around the backside to ambush and basically kill the men, the older men and the women and the children. And they would get the army in frantic because they would go and attack their families. And that's what, what God is referring to here concerning how they ambushed them on the way when he came from Egypt. And so the Lord says, now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep and camel and donkey. Now, sometimes when people read something like this, they think, you know, wait a second. How could God be so brutal? To ask them to go and just kill everybody. Listen, understand. Understand, the Amalekites, in God's eyes, were a cancer. They were a cancer upon the, the human race that were only going to be infecting the entire rest of the human race. And God said concerning them, they need to be wiped out. Now, we might think, guy, that seems harsh, but how would you feel if you went to the doctor? And the doctor said to you, you know what, you've got cancer, but you know what, we're not going to deal with it. We're just going to kind of, you know, we're not going to take it out. We're just going to kind of let it sit and, you know, hopefully it doesn't spread. And, you know, you wouldn't want that. You'd be like, man, get rid of it. Take it out now, you know. Well, that's the same thing. And we shouldn't expect anything less of God. And so he says concerning them to utterly destroy them. And so Saul gathered the people together and numbered them and tell me, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. The army of Israel has grown from 600 to this number. It's amazing. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. And then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart. Get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came out, came up out of Egypt. And so the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah 
all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he also took, underline this, Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag. Now notice this. Saul's the leader. The people are following him here in his sin. He spares Agag the king and note the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fatlings and the lamb and all that was good and were unwilling. Now underline that phrase unwilling because it's, it signifies to us that, that there was a, a willfulness on their part here to disobey. It wasn't like, you know, they thought that they were doing the wrong thing. This signifies they were unwilling. They were unwilling to do what God had asked them to do. They were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Here we see that Saul is obedient, but only partially. And what he brings back are some uh, some trophies. It's the best of the animals and King Agag. It's an incomplete obedience on his part. Verse 10. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel and he cried out to the Lord all night. God's heart, understand here, is broken over Saul's disobedience. The man who started out humble, he started out submissive to God, was now boldly going his own way in disobedience to God, and it grieved God's heart. But some read this and they say, wait a minute, how could God say, I greatly regret? Does this mean that God did not know what would happen? Does it mean that God wanted things to happen a certain way, but was powerless to make them come to pass? No, not at all. What we have here is the use of a, Anthropomorphism, which is when God explains himself to man in human terms so that man can have some understanding of God's heart. God knew from the beginning Saul's heart. He knew from the beginning Saul's ways and he knew from the beginning Saul's destiny. He knew that he had already sought for himself. He's told us this in 1 Samuel 13, a man after his own heart. And he knew that Saul wasn't that. Yet as this unfolded, God's heart was not emotionless. It wasn't like he was, you know, sitting there in heaven with a a clipboard checking boxes and coldly saying, oh, yep, there he goes again, all according to plan. No, what Saul was doing, his disobedience, it hurt God in the same way that our disobedience does. It hurts him. And since we couldn't understand what was really happening in God's heart and how this was hurting him, the closest that we could come is for God to express it in these human terms by saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king. It broke his heart. We pick it up in verse 12. So when Samuel arose early in the morning to meet Saul, It was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel. And indeed, he set up a monument for himself. Notice that, not for the Lord. He set up a monument for himself, and he has gone on around and passed by and gone down to Gilgal. And then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. 
I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Saul's putting on a good show here. Oh, here comes Samuel. Blessed are you, Samuel. Praise the Lord. Hey, you know, I've done just what I was supposed to do. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen, which I hear? And Saul said, they have brought them. Notice that. He's going to blame it on the people here. They have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to your God. Hey, let's let's turn this now. Let's turn it into a spiritual thing. Let's gossip about somebody and say, you know, we really need to be praying for so and so because of that. That's how we do. that. That's what Saul's doing here. Let's just turn this a little bit. He says, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. And then Samuel said to Saul, be quiet. We would say, shut up. Shut up. Just stop it, Saul. Stop it. Stop your excuses. That's what he's saying. And I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak on. And Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, when you were humble, in other words, were you not head of all the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? And now the Lord has sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, the king of the Amalekites. I have utterly destroyed the the rest of them, but the people took of the plunder and sheep and oxen and the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God, Samuel, in Gilgal. And so Samuel said, has the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. One could make a thousand sacrifices unto God and work a thousand hours for God's service or give a million dollars to the work of God, but all those sacrifices mean little if it's not attached to a heart that is surrendered to God and that heart being seen by simple obedience. The important thing to know in in Scripture, and it's all the way through, you find parallel passages where God is more interested in your obedience than in your sacrifice. He's more interested in your following Him than you're making sacrifices to Him. And the thing that God is interested in your life is submission to His Lordship and authority. To obey, He says, is better than offering sacrifices to obey. And at the top of that obeying is just God, us loving him with all of our hearts, him having our hearts and our submission to him being a response out of that love. David said in Psalm 51, sacrifices and an offering you didn't delight in, but a broken and contrite heart you will not turn away. Sacrifices and offerings, you You don't have any delight in that. 
but a heart that breaks, a heart that is broken, a heart that comes and is just being real. Oh, God says, I won't turn away. God will be more pleased with your attitude and brokenness toward him than any offerings and any sacrifices that we could make. And we need to be careful that we don't try to use sacrifice to cover up our sense of guilt. You know, too often people do that sort of thing. They kind of try to bribe God to buy their way out of things. Yeah, you know, I cheated that guy on that deal, but I tithed the money that I made from it. You know, that should make up for something. Sacrifice. God's not interested in that. It doesn't balance. He says to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. And then in verse 23, he says, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. And because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. A rebellious and stubborn heart rejects God just as certainly as someone who is rejects God by being involved in the occult or being involved in practices of idolatry. It's just the same. Our rebellion, it's as the sin of witchcraft. Verse 24, Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people. And obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Here's mistake number seven. Saul was more interested in pleasing the people than he was in pleasing the Lord. And you can't be. You can't be a good leader in anything and be a man pleaser, especially in things concerning the Lord. You have to do what God calls you to do. The Bible says that the fear of man is a snare. But the fear of God, it's the beginning of wisdom. The fear of man, though, it'll trip you up. And Saul's getting all tripped up here. He's getting all bound up. And he says, pardon me, forgive me. But there's no real repentance in his heart because that tendency to be a man pleaser is still deeply etched inside of him. Verse 26, we'll wrap it up. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go his way, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. And so Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent for he He is not a man that he should relent. And then he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now, please. Now check this out. Here we see his heart. Here's where we see that there isn't true repentance. That he's still, you know, so much concerned about how he's looking in the eyes of the people. Notice what it says. He says, I have sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come on, Samuel, don't run away. And everybody's going to be looking at me and they've heard what you said and they're going to think, man, I'm toast. So come on, honor me. Honor me before the people. Let them see me, you know, in that good light. And return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. And so Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. And then Samuel said, bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. And so Agag came to him cautiously. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. 
But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. I love that verse. (laughs) It's like gnarly, you know. It's like, here's this old prophet. Give me your sword comes up and just, you know, type of a thing. Just totally does away with Agag. Listen, listen close. We're almost done. This is how you deal with the flesh. This is how you deal with sin. Swiftly and aggressively. Swiftly and aggressively. You don't play around with it. You don't tinker with it. You don't... Bring it along for a show here and there. You deal with it swiftly and aggressively. Later on in the book of Esther, we meet a man by the name of Haman. Haman was an Agite. That means he was a descendant of Agag. He was an Amalekite who was a direct descendant of this man, Agag. And what's interesting about Haman, if you know the story there in in Esther, Haman, because of his hatred of Mordecai, he goes and he wants to the king to issue a decree to utterly destroy all the Jewish race, to totally put an end to God's people. Now, some believe that during this little excursion, when, when Saul was bringing Agag back from the battle, that somehow he is, you know, was able to, to, to get with one of the, the women there and he fathered a child. And that the, the race of the Amalekites continued on from that because we do see them later on in the Bible. Now, others believe that just Saul, you know, didn't destroy all of the Amalekites, but just all the Amalekites in that area where Agag was. And, you know, I don't know, you can believe what you want, but it is a, a little interesting thing. But, you know, it's interesting to me that that's what the flesh does. The flesh, if it's not dealt with swiftly and aggressively, it wants to take over. It wants to take over. It wants to destroy. And so what we need to do is we need to deal with those things the way that Samuel's dealing with it here. To take the bitterness and hack it into pieces, to get rid of it, to turn from it. To take the, the TV, if that's what, you know, is, is that area of sin in your life and throw it out the window. To take the cigarettes or whatever it might be, the drugs, and flush it down the toilet. To take the alcohol and pour it down the sink and just be done with it forever. To just be done with it. To unplug the internet. Whatever it might be, whatever it takes to deal with it swiftly and aggressively. Verse 34, then Samuel went to Ramah and Saul went up to the house of Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. And nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. As we pick up next week in chapter 16, we'll get introduced to David. And we're still going to see a lot of Saul. We're going to see just the wickedness of his heart. And, and what we basically are, are seeing with this man's life is he starts here and it just goes with one downward spiral after another until he's going to end up in the toilet, basically. His life just a mess. 
But in the midst of this, we're going to see as God is raising up this young man by the name of David, this man after his own heart. But we see tonight seven mistakes that Saul made, seven things that were born out of the pride in his heart. And I would encourage you tonight is before we go our way to just check yourself, to check yourself and to see are any of these things in your heart? Are any of these things in, in your life? Are any of these tendencies a part of, of, of the way that you deal with things and deal with people? And go after it if you sense that, the way that Agag or Samuel went after Agag. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. So powerful, so practical. An event that happened so many thousands of years ago can speak so pointedly into our hearts and into our lives here in this day and age, in this season, in this time. And so, Lord, we do, Lord, want to check our hearts tonight. And God, I pray if there be areas of sin and compromise and flesh and prideful attitudes, that, Lord, we would take the sword of your word and hack it to pieces. We would repent. We would confess. We would do whatever your word describes concerning us to handle those situations that we would do so. That we might be free. That you might be exalted. We give you our hearts in Jesus name. Amen.